I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... 60 or 70% of GDP is in whatever it is, 50 cities. What if you spread that out to 250 cities? And instead of having a community clubhouse and a pool, you have a co-working center in your community or other things where this reality of reconfiguring what does it mean to be a neighborhood... Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Coming up, we're talking with Pat Sheridan. Pat's the CEO of Modus Create, a technology and consulting firm here in the D.C. area. What do they do? Well, they make sure that your office is going to be your office of the future, which might mean not a physical office, but a place that you are part of a culture. How do you turn a regular office into a place with culture? Well, he talks a lot about that, and it's fascinating. And then what about commercial real estate? What's going to happen to those office buildings? He's got some amazing predictions about where we go with that. And lastly, what does it mean to be an apprentice? What does it mean to have skills that grow? Is it a BA from a college? Maybe not. Maybe some apprenticeships. Here's our conversation. Pat, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks for having so, me. So, uh, Modus Create, uh, let's start at the meta level. Sure. Tell me what the company does, when it was yeah. founded, and how maybe start the process of how it's migrated recently. So, Modus Create really helps companies accelerate a digital transformation. And for us, that really means four key things. The first is every company today, as you know, is becoming a software company. And the idea of understanding what is a portfolio of ever-growing digital products going to mean to that business. So product portfolio management and strategy. The second is every company needs to define what a software development life cycle is within that company. That is its kind of agile modernization uh, methodology. The third is that there are a lot of large commercial tools. So Amazon, AWS, your cloud environment, tools like Atlassian, uh, Jira that people use to manage this portfolio. And we're kind of a partner within a key couple uh, of these firms in the ecosystem. And the third is that uh, or I'm sorry, fourth. The, the fourth, fourth. rather, you're you're gonna, me, I'm know. testing the editing there, is, uh, is really around this idea of data and security. So the idea that as you begin this journey to modernize and connect all of your systems and be able to expose data, especially if you're in a regulatory environment, you need to understand what is our attack surface? How do we approach that journey from the perspective of security? So what you didn't say, but I bet has become top of mind as COVID has changed the world, is culture. Oh, and... You know, look, we've all seen cultures go right and cultures go wrong pre-COVID. What are you and your clients seeing in the transition of what used to be culture into what is now culture? Yeah, well, and I'll and I tell you, that's a great question, Mark, because 10 years ago when Jay and I started Modus Create, we had kind of looked at our own careers. We had met in the open source world, this intersection of kind of user experience and all this emerging technology to enable this new mobile digital channel. And when we looked at the open source projects that we kind of met on, you had this highly motivated, highly skilled workforce volunteering nights and weekends to create code. And when we looked at our careers in consulting, we kind of looked at this vendor lock-in that a lot of consulting companies try to get with their clients. And we wondered, all this new tech is happening in the, the open source world. People are building their kind of professional resume by contributing to these projects, but we don't see that within consulting. So can we build a consulting company that has this talent first kind of meritocracy where we're active, visible, and relevant in these communities. And so, so McKinsey meets GitHub. A hundred percent. That's a that's a great that's a great analogy because 
you know, 10 years ago, we were working with clients like Time Inc. that went from paper magazines to how do we monetize web to now figuring out do we have to do rev share with Steve Jobs? And it, was, it wasn't really a tech play. It was their fundamental business model was changing. And yep. so I think when you fast forward 10 years, folks ask me, well, how did you know to start a remote first company or to have this distributed talent model? And the reality is we didn't. The reality is we were looking at if you want to hire the best knowledge workers out there and you want to be talent centric, what do you need to look like? And as we answered that question every year, we became distributed, remote, work from home friendly so that by the time the pandemic hit and other folks were logistically like our clients and otherwise saying, how do we just get, you know, some some clients, not everyone had laptops. Right. So how do you physically get hardware? And so the logistical side of being remote, very different than the culture side. And to us, I think when I look at, say, the last four or five years, it's really around this idea of, you know, you think about Seth Godin's book around tribes, right? How do we build a sense of belonging? How do we make the work itself the culture, right? How do we make the company a platform for the teams achieving their career goals? And if you intertwine those things together, which is easier said than done, I think what you end up with is not kind of a executive vision on culture, but a very pragmatic reality of a platform that you've built, right, to have this virtuous cycle that builds and sustains the culture as the company grows. So the old phrase, better be better to be lucky than good, uh, no disrespect meant, but the world came to you. Yeah, and, 100%. But I'll bet when COVID hit, you must have had a, a less than fun aha moment. Were you concerned about where it was going to go? A hundred percent. You know, when I, when I think about, um, you know, going back in my mind to, to 2020, you know, having two international offices, right, that I was saying, if this thing really goes south, we're going to have to unwind a company in the United States, a company in Romania, a company in Eastern, you know, I may never be able to travel to Eastern Europe if we didn't hedge the, understand the labor laws and the things we need to do. So our first kind of shock to COVID was what we call DEFCON 5. (laughs) How do we make a decision tree to know if things go here, we have to do this. If things go there, we have to do this so that we can, you know, try to take care of our team and, and, and respect the business realities. What happened though, is by the time we got to June, what we started to realize is that we were going to have to triple the size of the company because our model had such a business kind of resilience or business continuity model for a lot of our clients that they were saying, we totally get it now. Whereas before they may have said, why don't you have big offices? And you know what I mean? All the kind of international labor pools. They were saying, how much workload can we put to you guys? Because you can kind of elastically, you know, scale this demand. And that, that put us on a totally separate path that I that I couldn't have imagined, but you know, very thankful that we we're able to handle that that stress test of growth. Has the economics of what you ask a client to pay you or interact with you changed by COVID, or is it still the same sort of rate card that you used before? The short answer is in technology, especially for an emerging technology, the things that create advantage for you in two years are commodified. Yeah. Right. So already when you play where Modus does in this kind of higher value role of consulting with with technologies, you can't rest on your laurels there. I think the dynamic for us um, is essentially, yeah, it has not been a commoditization right event for us, It's but it's been one where um, COVID made a 15-year fast forward and what we thought was already a macro trend. This yep. idea that there's a new white space in consulting between McKinsey and, say, a typical kind of nearshore or kind of outsourced development partner where it's really about this higher value velocity over scale about how do we build and sustain and grow a product organization for digital products. And that's where we're really seeing the growth of that segment in the market is underpinning our broader growth as a company. So when I worked in my short, glorious career as a general electric employee, we used to call the lower end of your bell curve there in consulting body shops, right? Yep. You throw people at, at body shops. That's right. Um, 
but applying that perhaps incorrectly to what it means to work at a company now, yeah. you clearly are at the tip of the spear on what is the future of work. So yeah. let's let's get a little, little crystal ball here for just a second. What are you seeing? Some of your clients, we mentioned, uh, yeah. I think AARP and a few yeah. others. Where are you seeing that going? You know, I think there's a, there's a couple things in the future of work that that are broader themes that are born out of what we see kind of in the engineering disciplines. But now we're applying to the marketing team and the HR team, right? So exactly, that's yeah, yeah. So the, thank you. The the first part of it is this idea of going from a credential degree right to micro credentials or industry credentials now. As we were kind of talking on the onset, I'm super proud of my MBA, right, from Georgetown um, and uh, do a lot there with the Center for is that is that a local school? I haven't it, heard it of that. Yeah. It may be. You may have yeah. heard of it. There's a couple yeah. with, with George in, in the name that I yeah, yeah. exactly that I like to get involved with. But when I think about this idea as companies have an opportunity now through micro-credentialing or these other kind of skills accretion programs where you don't have to, you know, for, for that – bell curve of knowledge work that you put out there, it's a lot easier for someone who didn't get a four-year degree, you know, tech engineering to become an engineer because they can self-educate on a lot of programs that are out there. Now, right. there is a deeper waterfall off and some other things that where it does benefit you, right, to have yeah. the kind of more advanced degrees. But when I look outside of the United States and see things that are happening really interestingly in places like Medellin, uh, Colombia, where they're thinking about it in terms of blue-collar knowledge work, right? How do we take someone who was working in a call center and get them to do QA. Mm -hmm. And how do we do that in 180 days, right? And I think when you think about some of the things in this region, right, whether it's Amazon kind of trying to build these different credential programs or get some of this content out there, that there's many ways to get into this kind of knowledge work. And I think Modus as a company, we really benefited because the Accentures of the world would never look at maybe 60% of our staff based on what they look like on paper, but their ability to contribute if you're able to screen for it, which is, I think is the thing that has to change internally, mm -hmm. Um, can be a real advantage to firms. We're talking with Pat Sheridan. He is the CEO and originally co-founder of Modus Create, a local company, consulting firm, doing all sorts of amazing things in work, the future of work, and how companies are addressing the change that was forced upon them with COVID. So you mentioned micro-credentials. Yeah. You're, you're a Hokie, right? You spent some time at the lovely school here in the area, obviously Georgetown in the, yeah. uh, uh, in the uh, Entrepreneurship Center, uh, and we can chat about that in a minute. But so are you seeing institutions like those or any colleges or universities kind of seeing how their trains come down the tracks at them? And if not, what's, what are going to be some change agents that are going to have to happen to them? Yeah. So I, first of all, I'm really proud of, of what's happening in this area. I've been fortunate enough to be involved with some of the programs that happen at GW and, and a few of the things over at Maryland. And um, a lot of these schools, right, are, are just reengaging alumni. Right. That can build these bridges back to the student work. And yep. then I think through things like, you know, Jeffrey, the Center for Entrepreneurship, actually creating a startup ecosystem within the broader campus, not just the business school. I think some of the most impressive startup ideas that went on to actually become profitable early stage ventures came out of the undergrad program. Right. Wow. Not even. So yeah. I think, you know, there, there's never ending work uh, to connect those dots. I think on the other side, what I've noticed in some of our work in the region is that the bigger employers kind of, you would think, would have all these internship programs and other resources, but it's sometimes hard to just engage with these academics. And so where I see a lot of opportunities, again, is the firms like Modus and others can bridge the gap to say, we're doing some work for you, but we can actually also, I can help bridge that gap to let's bring on some of these students that could help do a special project or something else. And a lot of these employers are interested because they're trying to build their own talent pipeline for the future. But sometimes I see, and I'm really encouraged to hear some of the thoughts you, you put forth, I see a kind of a rejection 
and I'm not talking about local schools. I'm, I'm involved with other schools elsewhere in the U.S., uh, but I see a rejection of the idea that we're in the business of making anything other than a BA, a BS, and some graduate degrees. And micro-credentials is often sort of an in-your-face challenge to that, that way of acting. What's your glass, you know, uh, a crystal ball prediction of how that sort of intrudes upon the ivory tower? Yeah, well, so I'll give you a very real example. So 10 years ago, I was lucky enough to join a meetup here in the area, okay, of a lot of serial entrepreneurs, maybe 30 people in it. How quaint, uh, meetup. On, right? on leans, yeah. On leans, yeah, getting together with real people in the real world. <laughs> highly risky to your health. But, uh, but that group of folks ahead of the lean startup book coming out, coming out. We're talking about, you know, I'm going to get an idea off the ground. I'm going to raise money for it. But I really need to understand the metrics by which this is going to grow. Ten years later, they're teaching that as curriculum in business school. Sweet. And my tongue-in-cheek to some of the deans is, you know, I learned that for free at meetups with other entrepreneurs. You know what I'm saying? So I I think they're – you know, I'm not an expert on how the academic institutions work, but it is a challenge in terms of some of those kind of models. But I see it as an and, not an or. And I think if they embrace it as an and, yeah. right, then then they're, they're going to they're gonna see some good things happen that they're not seeing now. From your lips to God's ears, it's Pat Sheridan is our guest today on What's Working in Washington. He's the CEO of Modus Create, a local consulting and technology firm doing amazing things. It's What's Working in Washington. We'll be right back. Back at What's Working in Washington, I'm your host, Mark Walsh. The Amazon effect. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people were flipped out, I think, in some ways for the right reasons and in many ways for the wrong reasons, about what mm-hmm. that effect would be when that corporation had its, you know, put its giant footprint here. Yeah. Where were you on that and kind of where are you today? You know, when I think about Modus's customer base, um, just to kind of frame this answer, I assumed that our market would be mid-market U.S. firms that would never go to Accenture but need this kind of full turnkey product kind of higher-end digital execution. Inside of that segment, I thought there's a lot of mid-market SaaS-type companies in the area, right, that are regional employers that just can't compete with Amazon's spend. Yep. Now, my kind of reading of the tea leaves of that, and I'm no expert. You know, well, hold on. Yeah. You mean the spend to hire talent? To hire, people. yeah. Okay. They can just out, they can restricted stock unit, right. you know, to whatever number they need See to, you get, later. Yeah. to get your people out of there. But the other part of my brain basically looked at uh, my early career doing a lot of work at Verizon that has a big presence here. And part of that, I think, is just lobbying, right? Yeah. You're close to kind of the lawmakers. So when I kind of looked at Amazon, there's multiple Amazons, right? There's Amazon, the kind of government relations side. There's the e-commerce side. Then there's really technology and mm-hmm. cloud. You know, my guidance to to firms, and I think the pandemic hit this fast forward, is, um, okay, you know, Amazon can poach out. Amazon is a very, you know, known for being a very kind of, they're growing by billions a year, right? High pressure environment. And so I've seen actual firms um, do well to hire folks out of Amazon that are saying, hey, we're using all the latest and greatest tech, but we're not the pressure cooker of working directly, right, for for Amazon. The liability still remains the same, which is, or, or has increased, which is, 
it's not just a big regional that can take your best people out now in this world, right? It's anyone that they can log into their Slack or get on their Microsoft Teams, right? And that, right. that I think, is, is reinforcing to firms that it's not an advantage to being a large regional employer. In fact, you know what I would say, Mark, is I've gotten states like Ohio calling me, their equivalent of the Fairfax County Economic Development, you know, right. to say, hey, you should put an office in Ohio. And I, I was saying to the guy somewhat seriously, you know what you should do is no, don't market guys like me anymore. Yeah. Market people to work there. And you look at states like Vermont saying, hey, we'll pay you ten grand to relocate to Vermont. Or exactly. you look at the, you know, the, the folks moving to zero um, you know, income tax states. So I, I think there's going to be a real play for the employees themselves, more so than the company to put the office. It's clearly true in, in our case. But I think it, it kind of also reinforced to a lot of companies that you know, there's a difference between having a high-performing culture and just having interesting interior design of your buildings. You know, you can spend a lot of money <laughs> yeah. to have a cool-looking office, but yeah. your culture is broken. So, yeah, right. yeah. Well, let's stay on that because okay. I think that's a big deal. And obviously, you guys do as well. So yeah. this Ohio an- analogy you just yeah. made. Um, so a company says, I'm going to hire uh, Susan because she's talented at X, Y, and Z, but yeah. she lives in Ohio and I ain't going to ask her to move. That seems to be happening a lot. Yeah. You think a trend like that is undeniable, or will there be ways to try and re-inculcate culture and ask Susie to be there one or two days a week or somewhere in between? So, listen, I, you're talking to a guy that's a, been 100% remote. You yeah. know, I mean, before starting Modus, I, I made the mistake of moving from Alexandria to Woodbridge and driving 65 miles each way to work up in uh, Shady Grove. Hello. And I, um, the amount of time that wait, I wait. spent. And that was an easy ride, wasn't it? Every oh, single man. day. I, you know, I had a, you know, this doesn't play well in radio, but I had a Honda Civic Hybrid to get on HOV. That's I mean, a I, I could, have, ta- sled. I could yeah. have taken the front seat out and sat in the back and driven that car. It's my height. But I owned that car for 10 years as yeah. just a reality, right? As kind of an appointed anecdote in years of my life I spent on, on 95. Right. And in, in summer traffic, if I may break in, for those of you listening who do not know the Washington area, Pat, our guest, Pat Sheridan, just described a nightmare commute. Please proceed. So when, you know, to me, right on the engineering side, it was already well established that you could have, you know, time zone distributed engineering teams. Right. right? But when you get to things like project management or user experience research, the world that I came out of, I was the biggest person saying this is you could never have this distributed but one of the things that really struck me is and and you probably know this from your early stage experience too is it's more about uh it has the person worked at a startup have they worked at a growth stage company have they built product in enterprises you find that type of person they're going to be i don't care where they are they know how to manage those life cycles agreed And, and we kind of we're interviewing so many folks that were coming out of big government contracting experience that had just read academically what is Agile, what is things, but they weren't living it on their, you know what I mean, the, yeah. the structure of the work, yep. that we actually had more success when we said, let's just go straight to California, let's find anyone remote U.S. that can do this, and really proved it out ourselves. But it was, you know, it took a lot for us to find the first core group of folks that then could build and grow, right, that team. Right. I think it's not that heavy of a lift because it's so, you know, normalized in the last two years. But I think it's here to stay. And, yeah. I, and I think the, you know, the, the physics of what's going on with MODIS is just my biggest data point in that regard. Culture again. Yeah. You were talking about earlier, in the early days, quote unquote, yeah. you were finding something in California, all that great stuff. So yeah. as we know, COVID jams all that into what what are some tools and tactics to make that happen faster? A and B, 
Is this sort of an ageism thing? I mean, are younger, quote unquote, employees more nimble in how they adopt these new tactics and tools? Yeah, I mean, look, I have a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old, and I still feel like they're teaching me things. I, I died to get both of them to learn how to code, and one launched an e-commerce business on Shopify, never wrote one line of code. It's more about the marketing and, right. you know what I mean, how, how do you yeah. segment and sell because of the commodification of tools. So I, I think the, the guiding principle for me, the bias that I had was my own career, which is that, you know, I moved jobs every three to four years working at early stage tech companies in D.C. They either went under, they got acquired, I got bored of the technology or the industry vertical. Or all so, the above. <laughs> correct. But So my orientation on the human capital strategy moving forward is that it wasn't like my parents sitting me down, you know, before I went off to tech to say, get, take the fill out the SF-171 and get a government job for 30 years. Yeah. To me, it's workforce, you know, skills development is job security. And so when I looked at building that into a model at Modus, I figured, look, Consulting companies offer something uh, of a variety in the work, and that has a certain stickiness as opposed to you can work for a great company, but if you're an elite engineer or product person, you may get bored of doing apps for banking or apps mm-hmm. for healthcare. So having variety is good. The second is that consulting is not for everyone, so we could have more. We could have a three- to four-year labor, labor turnover of 70% of the staff, So we're, yep. and we're not offering – you know, stock options, right? Because we're not a venture funded startup. So we netted out on a concept that we just called social contract. And this to me is something that I would encourage a lot of firms to do some introspection on. For us, the basic idea was that our social contract to an employee, whether they're in Eastern Europe or in the United States, is that by being associated with this platform, you're going to be forced to do skills accretion, which is going to be- To do to what? To accrete your skills, right? Skills development. And that that's and you're going to have a high degree of you know the the capability of your colleagues, and you're going to be working on visible work that you can reference right in the marketplace, and that's going to increase your market value as a knowledge worker. That's also the the kind of self lever leveler to back to modus, which is that if we want to stay the company that can employ that level of folks, we don't have to have some genius answer. What we just need to always be asking ourselves the question, what does that company do in this situation, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's benefits or other, you know what I mean, incentive yeah. programs. And increasingly what it's not, right, the money that we would do to, I think, handle the biggest challenge of remote working, which is it's hard to celebrate and you can feel isolated and alone. Mm-hmm. And in a pre-pandemic world, we were able to look at, instead of spending money on large sales teams or large real estate footprints, we were actually spending more time sending our people to conferences to do engagement and speaking and then get together with their colleagues around the world or work from the office in Eastern Europe or Costa Rica mm-hmm. for a month or a quarter. And so it, it forced us to kind of not create new budgets, but reapportion what would otherwise been a traditional spend into things that were culturally reinforcing. As we... Draw near the end of our conversation, which is fascinating. We're talking with Pat Sheraton, CEO of Modus Create here in Washington, D.C. Great term, skill accretion. Again, I challenge uh, whether the the uh, ivory tower of colleges and universities see a B.A. as that. But you're seeing that firsthand. But let me go to a different place. Yeah. Is the worst job in the world now to be in commercial real estate? Because what are you seeing as far as all these beautiful offices? And I mean yeah. no disrespect, but some great companies in Washington, yeah. D.C. have incredible offices, yeah. and that was a shtick. Yeah. But wh- where does that go? Well, I'll tell you where I think it goes. Um, and, and we have the benefit of, of knowing some really smart industry insiders there, like Harry Claff right, yep. at Avis Young. So when I talked to Harry, even before the pandemic, and I was saying, look, I've got real estate here, but I, I do 110,000 miles or more a year on United. There you so go. I need an office in Munich for a weekend, or I need an office in L.A., so I'm now signing up for WeWork. How come I'm not getting that as part of my lease? Yep. So 
You know, I think there's two parts of it. One is you'll look at a, a typical building in Reston, and maybe one floor of that building will be a Marriott hotel. Maybe another floor will be a co-working space, and things in between. Right? They're going to wow. get they're going to get smart on utilization. But I think the other more interesting thing is this potential rise of. I was talking to a friend of mine who did uh, energy modeling, PhD level guy for Department of Energy, and he talked about how 60 or 70 percent of GDP is in whatever it is, 50 cities. What if you spread that out to 250 cities? Wow. And instead of having a community clubhouse and a pool, you have a co-working center in your community or other things where this reality of reconfiguring what does it mean to be a neighborhood? Right. You know, and integrating some of these kind of new knowledge worker type benefits. I think we have a – look, I'm a rational optimist and I'm very bullish on the next century that, that we're going to unlock a lot of human potential – and people are going to have this integrated work-life balance, and we're go- and and the money and the opportunities will flow from that. And I think we're already seeing that in terms of people leaving, you know, the traditional employment cities, moving to places like Austin, Asheville, North Carolina, you know, and others. That is incredibly optimistic, and I admire that uh, because we both know people, or we've heard stories that sure. are less so. So, speaking of that optimism, let's go to our final question sure. here on what's working in Washington. We ask our guests. If you ruled the world or your own environment or the state of Maryland or Washington, D.C., whatever, for some period of time, what would you like to see happen or what would you make happen? And what would you like to see stopped and mandate stopping that? Gosh, that's such a great question. So I guess I'll, I'll try to just stick on, on the theme. Um, what, one of the, We've done a lot of work in and around education and education tech. And one of the things that I'd love to see happen <clears throat> is a shift to just encourage more apprenticeship. You know, right. when, you, when you think about, to me, what is entrepreneurship? My biggest critique is that it's a lot of the programs are go get a college degree, then go get an MBA, right? Then kind of go do business stuff as opposed to start a landscaping business. Mm-hmm. That business we need too could employ 50 to 100 people. Yep. And so I think there are certain things where in the same way kids can get um, loans for college, I think they should also be able to get the same kind of support, right, to get any kind of trades, school, anything that's going to add value. And then on top of that, we can layer in the entrepreneurial you know what I mean? Ecosystem mm-hmm. to help them run those businesses as well. That is exactly where my head is as well. So you and I, All right. if, if we ran the world know. together, we would be completely in, in charge of it. Awesome. And as we've touched on, the micro-credential theory of, or the challenge, I guess, and, and collision yeah. between that kind of thinking and where the ivory tower, which you and I are both very engaged in, sure. in different institutions here. Um, but I hope, and I'm going to challenge you now, what's the thing you would stop because you had a great vision of what you should should be happening. Anything oh, no. you would stop? Maybe stopping universities from saying you have to get a BA? That seems like the flip of that coin. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I think, you know, especially in our area, the, the, the idea of the kind of collegiate experience as this kind of necessary rite of passage, yeah. right? Yeah. And just reinforcing that there's a difference between learning and education, you know? Yep. Done. I, I think that would go a long way. Pat Sheridan. Pat is the CEO and co-founder. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. 